This is Cybok, the cybersecurity body of knowledge, distilling the knowledge from internationally recognized experts and providing foundational education and training for the cybersecurity sector. Hello and welcome to Cybok. I'm Dave Bittner from the Cyberwire. Joining us today is Kenny Patterson, professor of computer science at ETH Zurich. The knowledge area we're discussing today is applied cryptography. So there is already a cyborg knowledge area in cryptography, um, written by my uh, colleague and very good friend Nigel Smart from KU Leuven in Belgium. And Nigel, in that article, does a great job of covering cryptography from a more theoretical computer science perspective with a big emphasis on formal definitions and provable security and really taking a strong theoretical view of the subject. But there's a feeling that cryptography is more than just a theoretical uh, aspects. Um, the applied cryptographic aspects are distinctive and really deserve to be covered in their own uh, cyborg chapter. And so I was commissioned then to um, put this chapter together. Well, there's some things here in the introduction to this chapter that I think are, are really compelling. And you start off with this statement that cryptography is a mongrel. Let's dig into that. What, what are you getting at here? I'm, I'm trying to say two things. Uh, first of all, that cryptography really is constructed from a whole diverse range of disciplines. And so it pulls from mathematics and theoretical computer science, as, as we already mentioned, but also from things like software engineering, and also humans and computers and HCI, human-computer interaction. And it's really a blend of all of those things. And if we want to think about cryptography in its broadest sense and how it gets used in the real world, we need to take all those factors into consideration. And that leads to the interesting uh, situation where actually nobody is a true expert in every dimension of the subject anymore. It used to be, you know, it was just mathematics before computer science was really that well-established. Uh, then along came computer science, but now we understand cryptography really draws on all these distinct areas. Um, and that creates um, quite a lot of issues around um, the possibility for attacks against systems coming out of the gaps in this knowledge between these different subdisciplines. Things can fall through the cracks and get lost. And then you go on and, and make the uh, statement that cryptography does not equal encryption. I think. Um, for a lot of folks who are laymen like myself, uh, that's, an, that's an interesting point of distinction. Yeah, indeed. And I did want to get at least one mathematical symbol into the whole uh, chapter. And so the not equal sign <laughs> is in there in the in this subsection title. The idea here is that traditionally cryptography was equated with encryption. So, you know, back when Caesar was using the Caesar cipher to communicate with his generals, it was only about encryption and there, thereby providing confidentiality for sensitive data. But nowadays, we also care, for example, about the integrity of data. We want to make sure that data has not been tampered with, maybe uh, in a storage system or as the data is being sent from a client to a server in a secure communication. And then we also want to do much more. We want to think about um, using cryptography to solve seemingly impossible problems. Uh, and as I talk about cryptography being magical in that respect. So if you use cryptography... Uh, you can solve something like the, the millionaire's problem where two parties, Alice and Bob, uh, can figure out uh, just through communicating with each other 
which one has the has the most money, the more money, sorry, there's two of them, without leaking anything to each other except the answer to the question, which one of us has more money? So if we wanted to find out, Dave, which one has more money, I could tell you, you know, my net worth and you could tell me yours and then we could figure out who's worth more, but we'd be leaking more information. We would then know at the end who what, what each of us is actually worth. And the question is, can we solve that problem without actually revealing what each of us is worth to the other? And this is called the millionaire's problem. And using cryptographic te te techniques, we can also solve that kind of problem. And that goes way, way beyond confidentiality and integrity. Right? It takes cryptography into a much broader realm, which concerns what can we compute individually or together um, based on some private information we have without leaking anything else to anybody else. And then you you move on to to make the point, which I think is is really important, particularly when we're talking about applied cryptography, which is that cryptography is political. Indeed. So there has been this long running discussion debate about can we limit the spread of cryptography? Can we stop strong cryptography falling into the wrong hands for some definition of wrong? So cryptography is a technology that's used by all kinds of people. It's used by uh, whistleblowers who want to communicate securely with journalists um, in order to you know, reveal information about malfeasance within a corporation or within a government. But it can also be used by, say, pedophiles to share indecent images with each other in a secure way and in a way that they can't be detected. And so, like many technologies, cryptography is a tool that can be used for different purposes. And depending on your value system, those purposes are good or bad, right? So one person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter. Okay, it depends on your mm. perspective in any given situation. Um, and so uh, for decades, even hundreds of years, governments have sought to control the spread of strong cryptography and have even promoted the spread of weak cryptography, uh, cryptography that they can break that they hope nobody else can break. And you know, even today, there are, there are very widespread export control regulations that control to what extent cryptography can be exported from one country to another. And depending on the country, this is easier or, or more difficult. Um, so there's been a long-running debate about the control, but also uh, more recently, say the last five, ten years, a lot of concern from law enforcement about what they call going dark, which, you know, the increased uptake of encryption, they argue, has led to them having less visibility over what's been communicated about and therefore harder to gather intelligence. Um, and so applied cryptography uh, cannot afford to ignore those kinds of issues for very long. You run into them very quickly whenever you start working in the field. There's a lot of depth in the publication here, a lot of details that unfortunately in the limited time you and I have together, we're not going to be able to dig into a lot of those details. So we'll we'll rely on the publication itself for that. But I would like to get some overviews of the sections here. The first section goes into algorithms, schemes, and protocols. Can you give us a high-level description of... Uh, of what you're describing here. Sure. So cryptography is built out of building blocks. And these are these low-level primitives or algorithms, sometimes called cryptographic schemes, things like hash functions and digital signatures. And we combine those in different ways to build more complex systems. So the beginning of this of this particular section of the of the paper is really giving a sketch, a thumbnail sketch of each of the main cryptographic building blocks that we use when we're building more complex systems. And then towards the end of the chapter, 
I talk about what are some of the challenges arising when we try to combine these to build more complex systems. So one of the key issues in cryptography is that security does not compose. What that means in layman's terms is that we can take two cryptographic, distinct cryptographic primitives that each satisfy some well-defined security definition. But then when we put them together to build a more complex system, security fails in some way. There's some unfortunate interaction between the components or we don't quite achieve the security that we want from the overall system based on these individual components. And so as the complexity of the system gets higher, it becomes harder to analyze for humans. Uh, and there's also you know, more and more of a risk of missing some of these critical interactions between the components that, that lead to insecurity. And the second section digs into cryptographic implementation. Mm-hmm. Uh, take us through some of the things in this area. So this is a very uh, a very broad area, which uh, again is one of those aspects of the, that maybe you don't think about so much when you're thinking about cryptography from a theoretical perspective. But when you're thinking about cryptography as an applied topic where we want to build real systems that are protecting the personal data of real human beings, say, or you know, uh, valuable corporate information or government secrets, we have to take into account not just the mathematical description, but also how we can go about implementing the cryptography securely on modern computers. And that brings many, many challenges because modern computers and modern CPUs are very complex devices with uh, all kinds of unanticipated behavior. And so you can have a perfect mathematical description of some cryptographic algorithm, but then when you try to implement it on this complex hardware, um, all guarantees are off about the actual uh, security of the implementation. In particular, for example, we recently learned a lot about uh, cache attacks. And this is uh, where we're running our cryptography in a shared system which is uh, being shared with other users. This is very typical now, for example, in cloud deployments of cryptography. And there, the uh, other user running a process should be isolated from my software running my cryptographic process, but there can be interactions between the two because of shared memory resources, so shared computer memory. So you know, computers have these uh, very fast memory areas called caches, which are shared between different uh, processes running on the same CPU. And now the attacker can, by observing how long things take to happen in its process, can learn something about what memory access my process made. And that can then leak information about keys, or actually you know, sensitive information, and in particular information about keys in the long run. So you, there are all kinds of uh, cache timing attacks against naive cryptographic implementations. And that section also talks about how can we protect against these kinds of attacks. And there's a whole range of protection measures that we, we describe in that part of the chapter. Yeah, one of the, the areas that um, really uh, drew my attention was you, you talk about random bit generation and mm-hmm. some of the challenges there. Can you share with us what, uh, what some of the challenges are? Yeah, so um, cryptography is highly dependent on good sources of random bits in many different ways. Uh, I guess the core example is that we need to generate cryptographic keys. These are short bit strings that we use for performing our cryptographic operations, and all of the security rests on the security of those keys in the end. And so we need access to you know, good random sources of bits to generate these keys, and we might need to do that very often. And so the question is, how do you generate randomness on a digital deterministic computer? Well, technically you can't. Um, So (laughs) nowadays, though, many operating systems have an inbuilt pseudo-random number generator, uh, which is seeded by gathering entropy from the local environment. So you look at things like uh, disk uh, disk access times 
or process IDs and you try to kind of get a few bits from here and there, you're scraping bits from the computing environment and you put them in an entropy pool and then you try to process that entropy pool cryptographically and then extract random bits from it. So most modern operating systems have pretty good solutions to this problem. And some chips, some CPUs actually offer a true random number generator implemented in hardware um, and you can access that directly. So this this has been a big problem for a long time, but it's a problem that's gradually being solved because operating systems are doing a better and better job of making good random bits available to applications. I remember back in the early days when I was a teenager, working with my first 8-bit computers, that mm -hmm. when we would try to get inject random elements into games, we quickly bumped into the problem yep. that every time you rebooted the machine, the same you'd get the same answers to a request for a random number. And that led to the press any key to continue solution where uh -huh. you'd set the computer into a loop of just generating random numbers and rely on that someone would press a key at a random time. You know, it wouldn't be the same time every time. And that's how you'd get your, I suppose by today's standards, it was a little bit clunky, but back in the day it worked. Absolutely. And you know, the same issue arises today in things like virtual machine environments. So if you if you boot a virtual machine, which a complete um, virtual machine containing an OS image, then how is the pseudo-random number generator seeded? And it, it's been shown uh, in research that if you try to generate random numbers too early in such a system, then there won't be enough entropy there and the outputs become predictable. And that can lead mm -hmm. to cryptographic catastrophe because some cryptographic schemes are very, very sensitive to repeated random values. That's a bit of a, a, a misnomer to, to call them repeated random. They can't be both repeated and random, but you, you, <laughs> right, you, know, you right. see what I mean, right? If your machine yeah. starts from an identical state, you would end up using the same random number twice. And then actually that can, for some, some schemes, lead to disaster, allowing hmm. things like private key recovery, for example. Well, the next section goes into key management. So mm -hmm. take us through the various elements here. So as I was saying, um, cryptographic keys are, are critical in cryptography. And uh, most cryptographic, say, research papers, even cryptographic textbooks, just assume that the keys are there, they're given, they're in place and ready to use. But of course, in real systems, we have to figure out how to do this. So uh, you know, if, if I want to securely communicate with you, maybe I have to meet you in a private physical location and I can write a key on a piece of paper and give it to you and then you can, we can use that key afterwards when next time we want to securely communicate with each other. But of course, that doesn't scale very well and it doesn't work if I want to buy something from Amazon whose server is on the other side of a world in a, in a, in a data center. I can't go there with my piece of paper and give them a key. So we have to solve uh, the key distribution problem in particular, but more generally this whole area of how do we create keys, distribute keys, how do we refresh keys, how do we destroy keys at the end of their lifetime is the, the subject of key management. Um, and there's a whole collection of ad hoc uh, technical measures that we use to manage keys, to make new keys from old keys, for example, or to refresh our keys. But there's also sort of policy and management aspect of this, which is really non-technical. So for example, if you work in a bank, uh, most banks by now should have a key management policy and a manual that describes, you know, how are keys generated, how are they stored, how are they transmitted. Um, and this is, um, as I mentioned, it's something that kind of, if you like, academic cryptographers, of which I am one, have a tendency to sweep to one side because it's complicated and ugly. 
But in reality, we have to deal. We have to deal with this. If we don't deal with it, then what we end up with is software developers putting fixed keys into software, and this is something we see all the time. For example, in in low end IoT systems or in uh, you know Wi-Fi old 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 school Wi-Fi routers, putting a fixed key in there and letting the system run forever is, is what people used mm-hmm. to do as a kind of pragmatic solution uh, to the problem. So it's something that we have to address in applied cryptography. Yeah, I mean it's that 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 pesky real world, right? Where, where the theoretical side, us. yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. A friend of mine likes to say, "Nothing is foolproof to a talented fool." <laughs> Indeed. <Very good. laughs> well, let's move on to the next section. This is consuming cryptography, and I have to say, uh, the the way that you lead off this chapter is is quite compelling. Uh, you you talk about um, how uh, there are people who are enthusiastic about this subject who. Uh, but may not be suited to actually uh, engaging with the, the process itself. Yeah, indeed. And this was a, a, a section I really wanted to include in the in the chapter. And it's really more of a personal view about consuming cryptography. And based on a lot of my experiences working as a cryptographic consultant over the years, um, I've done a fair amount of that in, in different segments. One of the situations I find myself in sometimes is where an investor has money to invest in some new, amazing cryptographic algorithm, and they themselves don't have the skill level to assess whether it's worth investing in or not. Um, At the same time, they're dealing with some inventor who's come up with some, what they think is an amazing new cryptographic idea. But almost always that inventor is, for want of a better word, an amateur. Mm. And cryptography really has advanced long beyond the stage where uh, amateurs can, without you know, significant amounts of training, can make significant contributions to the field and come up with new compelling ideas that are really better than what we already have. And actually, that's one of the best ways to advise these potential investors is to say, yes, it solves the problem, but we can already solve that problem for free with a widely adopted standardized algorithm. So what your inventor is giving you is not really helping you uh, get something that's really commercially viable. So in general, um, there are a number of fallacies that that these and inventors tend to tend to commit or tend to fall for, which things like the kitchen sink fallacy, which is where I can build a secure algorithm surely just by adding enough complicated components and mixing them all up together. So we throw everything in, including the kitchen sink, and we hope that we we make something secure. Uh, there's also the uh, the friendly cryptanalysis fallacy, which is well, I've tried to break my own design, so it must be secure, and of course. You're as psychologically, you're never that invested in breaking your own design, despite your best efforts. Right? This is a well-known phenomenon in in, in cryptography. Um, so the section starts by talking about this issue, and then it also talks about the the kind of errors that developers, uh, software developers in particular, who are using cryptography, end up committing. And really, it's not their fault, right? So they're 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 not necessarily cryptographic experts, nor should they be. Um, and the problem is that they have a tendency to try to build their own systems using cryptography in complex ways. And, and that almost always ends in disaster. Or not mm. almost always, I don't have the evidence to say that, but <laughs> that often ends in disaster, let's say. Um, and so uh, what I also go on to talk about is what are some of the remedies for this? So what can organizations, companies large and small do to guard against this kind of, uh, this exuberance uh, uh, concerning cryptography? And I talk mm. about how, you know, using having a crypto team in house is probably pretty important if you're a large tech company, an Apple or a Google or a Microsoft. And indeed, all those companies do. They employ uh, large numbers of talented cryptographers to do cryptography and to work with their development teams 
and be involved in the in the design process uh, for these complex systems. Smaller companies can't afford to employ cryptographers, but they can make use of external consultants, for example, to to help them avoid these pitfalls. And then and finally, one of the final points I make there is that, look, if, if you're a company, maybe a startup, and your core business is cryptography in some sense, better employ some cryptographers. Um, I've run across a number of startups, particularly in things like the blockchain area, where that is not true, unfortunately. Then they, they try to develop something cryptographic, and of course, they, they, they make uh, a, lot of, a lot of mistakes. And cryptography is really fragile and delicate in that sense, unfortunately. We try to make it more robust over time, but it's, it's very easy to make a small mistake somewhere that has large ramifications. So when cryptography fails, it tends to fail spectacularly with very hmm. serious consequences. And so it's, hmm. sometimes it's called a foot gun, right? It's very easy to shoot yourself in the foot with it. <laughs> it's good. I like I like that term. Well, the next section, uh, you really dig into some of the examples here. It's titled Applied Cryptography in Action. And you you go through things like uh, TLS, secure messaging, you know, some of the specific uh, specific messaging apps and, and so on. Uh, any highlights you want to share from this section in, in particular? So there are three main areas there that I cover. You mentioned two of them. And the third one was contact tracing. And uh, mm. the work I was involved with there uh, with a, a distributed team mostly based in Europe called DP3T. And there we very rapidly developed privacy-preserving solutions for doing contact tracing based on Bluetooth proximity. And the technology that we developed, uh, it was done in a matter of weeks. And it had to be as simple as possible. So the, the KISS principle was involved, keep it simple, stupid. Um, and uh, uh, consequently, that technology was adopted by Google and Apple in their exposure notification framework. So the GAN system, which is now uh, on billions of phones, um, actually is built on top of the DPTT ideas. Um, and so uh, there, I think the people involved, me included, felt an enormous sense of responsibility to try to do something good, try to do something right. And, and try to make it um, as privacy-preserving as, as we possibly could, understanding that actually in this space, no system is perfect. All systems leak something. Uh, and so there was a, it was a tremendously uh, fast-moving time and a little bit scary because of the sense of responsibility. So I think that's a particularly interesting one uh, to, 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 to reflect upon. Um, it's an example where cryptography uh, in a kind of mission-critical application gets developed extremely rapidly and rolled out very, very quickly in a matter of months. And I had never seen anything like that before. Normally, these projects take you know, years to reach fruition. Hmm. Um, like something like TLS 1.3, by contrast, the transport layer security standard developed in the ITF, took something like four years to develop uh, and to be analyzed and standardized. And it was a very nice... Um, interaction between academia and industry to develop a standard uh, with security in mind as we went along, rather than trying to break out of this constant break-fix cycle that had plagued earlier versions of TLS and adopt a new way of working together. Um, so those, those different case studies are really trying to highlight some of these issues around development, um, around how crypto makes its way into applications, uh, as well as talking about some of the security properties uh, as well that we're being that we're being aimed for. And I, I think that you know the example of, of the contact tracing is is really um, fascinating when it comes to applied cryptography because I think it really highlights that in the real world sometimes you have to make practical compromises. Absolutely. Um, so one example of that in the con in the context of contact tracing is that we were constrained by what Bluetooth could do. 
in particular the size of the packets that Bluetooth could transmit were, were limited. Mm. And so we couldn't use any public key cryptography techniques if we wanted a solution that could be very quickly adopted. Um, so we were constrained to use symmetric key techniques. And, uh, you know, we, we got many, many comments from academic cryptographers saying, why are you not using such and such a scheme that, you know, maybe I invented years ago? Well, because <laughs> because we had to keep it simple, stupid. Uh, and of course, right. you, miss out, you miss out the last word there when you're talking to your colleagues. But um, sure. it actually, the whole project, DP3T, really nicely illustrated some of the differences between theory and practice in that quite a lot of theoretical colleagues wanted to say, well, let's take some time to think about this and develop the security models and think about the adversarial capabilities. And we did all of that in a very rapid way, but not in the kind of, um, let's say, very careful epsilon delta kind of way that we normally would when we're, when we're, uh, when we're developing you know, cryptographic research papers. We had to move fast and try not to break too many things along the way. I think right. we broadly. I think we broadly succeeded. Um, there was a very nice paper that appeared in Nature uh, about a couple of months ago that analysed the epidemiology in the UK, and there the contact tracing app that was eventually based on the Google Apple system, um, based on DP3T, is supposed to have reduced the number of cases by about half a million, according to the the analysis that was done. And you know, with a mortality rate of around mm, somewhere between half and half of one percent and one percent. That's that's quite a lot of lives that potentially the technology was able to to save. Right. Yeah. Right. So that contrast between you know the theoreticians wanting to spend three years and get an EU grant or a, an NSF grant to study this, compared to the, the 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 timeline that we were operating on, it was really an interesting contrast. Absolutely. Well, the final section uh, you go into the future of applied cryptography. Where do you suppose we're headed here? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I I I have some fairly speculative statements there. Maybe I created some hostages to fortune for the near future. <laughs> um, one thing I do talk about there is is uh, blockchain and cryptocurrencies. They have been very interesting for driving the development of new cryptographic techniques and forcing the improvement of existing ones, making them more practical. Um, not Bitcoin itself, it's cryptographically quite boring, but some of the more advanced technologies, for example, Zcash is an anonymous cryptocurrency that uses something called zero-knowledge proofs as a way of um, proving the correctness of transactions without revealing anything about the, the value of the transactions or who is transferring money to whom, for example. And, and so we've seen a lot of innovation in this whole space. And really interestingly, a lot of cryptographers have, say, left their existing positions and gone and joined some of these uh, blockchain cryptocurrency startups. So there's been hmm. a little bit of an exodus from the core cryptographic community into, into a lot of these companies. But of course, they're, they're there doing interesting cryptography. And so blockchain cryptocurrency as a space has enabled, um, has opened the door to a lot of cryptographic innovation and the deployment of that cryptography. So in cryptography for decades now, we've been developing all kinds of really cool uh, cryptographic techniques like the the ability to solve the millionaire's problem that I mentioned a while ago. But nobody was using that stuff for anything. And uh, uh, this, this whole blockchain cryptocurrency innovation um, has enabled us to start really exploring how these things work at scale, what the development issues are, and so on. And, and so this has been really exciting. Um, setting aside all of the hype and the lack of stability of the cryptocurrency values cryptographically, it's actually been very interesting to watch. I mean, it's interesting as, you know, with, I guess, was it fair to say that with the combination of, 
of available processing power. Um, and as you say, you know, the, the funding, the, the interest from the private sector in what you're doing here, it seems like it could be considered a, a bit of a golden age for cryptography. I really think it is. Uh, I think that's a really nice observation. Um, cryptography used to be, you know, the preserve of emperors and generals, and then banks started using it. And then in the 80s and 90s, mobile telecoms companies. Now we're all using cryptography all the time, whether we realize it or not. Um, and so cryptography is literally everywhere. It's in everybody's hands. And it's becoming, I think it's becoming ever more important as we, as the value of data and securing that data is is becoming realized. Of course, cryptography is only one tool that we that we use in this kind of uh, quest for security. And we've heard a lot about, you know, ransomware and breaking into systems and stealing data and so on. Their, their cryptography maybe doesn't help very much, right? Still traditional things like patching and good security management are very, very important. But I think cryptography enables entirely new kinds of applications that were not possible before. So, for example, outsourcing all of your data storage to the cloud, but not wanting to fully trust the cloud provider, well, you could encrypt your data, but then you couldn't do anything with it. So what we want to be able to do is to do computations on encrypted data using advanced cryptographic techniques like fully homomorphic encryption or um, searchable encryption, for example. That's, that's a very nice technique, very nice area that I work in myself, developing encrypted databases where we can still perform, say, SQL queries or SQL queries on data that's actually encrypted. So we can't look at the data, but we can still query the data and get answers from it. Um, so in that sense, the, the, the future for cryptography is very bright. One of my main aims in being involved in education in cryptography is to show that future to our students and prevent them all disappearing off into uh, you know doing machine learning and uh, and data science, you know which after all is just applied probability and applied statistics, right? Cryptography is way more, is much more than that. It's much deeper and much more interesting. And so I hope we can keep a few of the brightest minds in the field to help us build that future. Well, as a, as a layman in this area, but uh, someone who still uh, enjoys these sorts of conversations, I have to say I'm, I'm reminded of, I think it was Arthur C. Clarke who said that a high enough level of technology is indistinguishable from magic. And uh, you and your fellow uh, wizards and witches, uh, I, I wish you well as you continue with these, uh, these endeavors that to us uh, – seem like magic <laughs> thank you so much Dave well, I hope you get a chance to read the chapter and maybe it will seem a little bit less magical by the, by the time you get to the end no I appreciate it thanks so much for taking the time for us Kenny pleasure Dave great to meet you thanks our thanks to Kenny Patterson for joining us you can check out the entire Applied Cryptography Knowledge Area publication on the Cybok website cybok.org this podcast is a product of the University of Bristol. Cybok is funded by the UK National Cybersecurity Programme and led by Professor Awais Rashid, along with Andrew Martin, Emil Lupu, Steve Schneider, Howard Shivers, and Yulia Cherdansiova. The Cybok podcast is produced by The Cyberwire with senior producer Jennifer Iben and Bristol University's Helen Jones. The executive producer is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. <laughs>